Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at the works of great American writers using the Library of America as my source material. In this episode, we'll be continuing our look at the Leatherstocking Tales by James Fenimore Cooper. Specifically, we'll be beginning our examination at the third of the third of the Leatherstocking Tales, The Pathfinder. Now, the Pathfinder is actually the, the chronologically in the order of of our character, Leatherstocking Eddie Bumpo, the third in the story. It is set sometime after the events of the Last of the Mohicans. It's not even, we're not given a clear date. The Last of the Mohicans was clearly set in 1757. However, the Pathfinder is sometime after that, we know. But the Exact date isn't clear. We do know it's still in the 1750s, though, and it's still set during the Seven Years' War in North America, the, the French and Indian War. So we can imagine it's about a, a year or two uh, after the events of The Last of the Mohicans. It is the fourth of the Leatherstocking Tales to be published, however. Uh, the first is The Pioneers, the second, The Last of the Mohicans, and the third, The Prairie. Uh, these This trilogy, because they were published... I think close to each other. And then the final two volumes of Leatherstocking Tales were published a bit of time later. But those first three are kind of the two stories about the end of Leatherstocking's life and then a prequel, Last of the Mohicans. But when you add these other two, you get, a, I guess, a folder picture of, of his whole life. But he didn't write those last two, The Pathfinder and The Deerslayer, until, until the 1740s. So Pathfinder was published in 1740 and Deerslayer one year later. So these are, he really coming back to this character after some time of, of being away from them. In this sense, I think the Pathfinder feels a lot like the Deerslayer. Uh, the plot's quite a bit different, and but thematically it's similar. It reads very similar. There's a very slow burn, both of those novels, where there's a lot of conversation, a lot of discussion, a lot of focus on contrasts. It's less of a straight-up adventure story, although it does have adventure and action, especially in the later part of the novel and a little bit in the beginning. But it's a little bit more ponderous of a story. In that sense, it's, it's very much like the Deerslayer. What I like about the Pathfinder is it involves something that, that I'm interested in in my own research, which, which is sailing. And particularly, it's, it's focusing on Lake Ontario. So we have contrast between freshwater sailors and saltwater sailors. One of the characters we meet is a, is a seaman. But we have also have freshwater sailors from Lake Ontario. And then we have these frontiersmen that we've already known for a while now, Chingachgook and Pathfinder, who are really useful on rivers and with canoes and things like that. But um, we got a lot more of just types of environments that people dwell in and excel in. And a major theme of the Leatherstocking Tales is this concept of gifts. Gifts is something that uh, Leatherstocking always says about people or himself. Like, I have these gifts, or those aren't my gifts, or, you know, you have your gifts. Which is a mixture of things. It's it's partially your upbringing and your, and your racial heritage and, 
and so he does talk about like the gifts of white people and the gifts of of quote-unquote redskins Indians or the gifts of the Mingos so everyone has each kind of people have their gifts but then individuals have their gifts too and some are good at some things and some are good at others and he talks about like the gifts of frontier women and versus the gifts of women who grow up in the cities so this is a theme that's really pushed in the deer slayer and it's here too and you can sort of tell these novels are written together even in the way he kind of arranges chapters um and the way the novels kind of constructed it, it's very similar to to the deer slayer all right so it's it's not really clear how this what leatherstocking has done since the last of the mohicans we know he's so lake george where those events take place is more in the eastern part of new york so he's out on lake ontario now so he's quite a bit farther to the west um well, we're just going to look at the first 100 pages because in each episode I look at just 100 pages and that's roughly the first six chapters, right? So um, it doesn't quite break down that every six chapters is 100 pages, but I'm just going to take it six chapters at a time. So over average, each episode will look at about 100 pages. But the first six chapters really comprises of just two brief stories. The first is just a, almost a prologue in which these two parties of guides meet. You know, he could have, Cooper could have just had the whole party together from the beginning, but he's doing something he's done in all three of the novels I've looked at so far, which is start with our characters broken up and then having them meet at some point and get to know each other, and then venture off. And groups coming together and breaking apart is something we've seen, seen again and again in Cooper's writings by this point, and he doesn't change his formula for this story, certainly. So the first part is just basically these two parts of our companions meeting. Um, although, like in the last of the Mohicans, the meeting was a bit accidental. This time, the meeting is on purpose. This is an arranged meeting, kind of more like the Deer Slayer. And then the second part of it, really chapters four, five, and six, is an ambush, a betrayal, and an, and an escape. And that's much more action focused. So I don't know how much of the details I'll give you of of the action. There's a lot of details on maneuvering, a lot of details on on fighting and things. But I'll just kind of pick some highlights as we go through these chapters rather than giving you like a blow by blow of these of this of these battles because that, that you can read those and enjoy them for yourself i'm i'm going to look at these as always a little bit more thematically all right so with that i'll just jump into the pathfinder oh and, and what, by the way i really like this novel i i don't know if it's my favorite maybe at the end of this series i'll try to rank the leather stocking tales i think it'll be difficult to do because i like them all for different reasons i last of the mohicans had this really emotional punch the deer slayer has a lot of great philosophy and it's it's a bit ponderous but you know it's it's kind of rich and it has that great torture scene at the end this one i i really like because of of some of the characters we have i like that deerslayer has an arc in this story which he doesn't really have elsewhere he's sort of christ-like in all the stories he, you know just this ideal frontiers man self-sacrificial brave no bad characteristics here, I don't think he has bad characteristics presented here either, but he does have a bit of a character arc, which it's about a love story, and and we see him sad for the first time ever. Sad, I mean, visibly sad. I mean, there's some moments in the Deer Slayer where he's worried and fearful of his future, but here we see him openly weep and things like that. So it's it's nice. It's about a love story. So that's a really nice addition to this this tale, and I just love the focus on sailors and seamen and the and the inland sea and the contrast between the inland sea and the salt water and the, the tensions between these different groups of sailors. It's a lot of fun 
And Cooper seems to have a lot of fun with this. He, of course, had a background in At the Sea, and he wrote many sailors' novels. We'll be looking at those after the Leather Stocking Tales. So he knows what he's talking about when he's talking about sailors. Um, but anyways, let's just jump into it. Um, chapter one. So our we, we meet one group of characters. Uh, we got a man, man named Charles Cap, who is a seaman, um, and the uncle of the major female character in the novel. Now, he's got a good name because he's a, a sailor and he's Charles Cap. And he's often referred to just as Cap. And you want to think Captain. Cap Captain. It's kind of efficient that way. I, I, I don't know. If, was he a captain? He might have been um, high ranking. He's an older man. He's actually the uncle of the second character we meet, which is Mabel Dunham. She's always referred to as Magnet by Cap. She's the daughter of a sergeant in in a British regiment that's based nearby in Fort Oswego. So we have a story that's set up very much like The Last of the Mohicans, where we have a daughter, in that case it was two daughters, but here it's one, trying to meet, a, 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 trying to be escorted to a father in a, in a British fort in the midst of a war. Their guides are a Tuscarora Indian. Now the Tuscarora were the sixth tribe of the Iroquois Confederacy. The Iroquois Confederacy started out with five tribes and the Tuscarora added later as a sixth tribe. They're part of this kind of Iroquois speaking group. Um, now there's, as always with these tales, a bit of imprecision about these groups. Of course, the Iroquois were allied with the British, the Huron, who are Iroquois in people, but not part of the Iroquois Confederacy. So they're culturally kind of the same group, but distinct politically. They were allied with the French. But then there were Iroquois groups that broke off and fought against the British, and they seem to be part of the story. Now, Leatherstocking, the Pathfinder, we'll start calling him the Pathfinder for this story. The Pathfinder refers to all of these character, all of these people as Mingos, which is the general pejorative term for the Iroquoian people. But the Huron, who were dominated the first two stories we looked at in this series, uh, don't really show up here. So it seems the Indians we're dealing with are, are straight up Iroquois, but they're ones who are, for some reason, branching off and, and battling the the British. Okay, so that's the main story. They have to get to this fort on Lake Ontario. And so they're guided by this Tuscarora named Arrowhead. And he's got a wife with him, Dew of June, which is kind of a nice name, Dew of June. Um, and they're, they're basically the guides. And we get this nice scene as they come in and he sees the fire and he immediately... Arrowhead, I mean, Arrowhead immediately knows the fire means there's white people there, that Indians don't make fire that way because the smoke would look differently. So it's, it's actually a big part in this story is just this close attention and how careful you have to be in these war contested frontier areas and how little details matter and how good trackers can can sense these things. There's even a moment later on. It's I'll, I'll come back to it in a bit, but where even scent matters you know like what scent you leave behind it's not just the dirt and the garbage you leave behind but you, people can be tracked just by scent so so en route they they come upon the camp of of our our hero pathfinder natty bumpo hawkeye deer slayer he's got so many names it's great uh and i don't know how he got the name pathfinder how he got his name changed he he was being called hawkeye throughout last of the mohicans but now he's i just i just think cooper likes to have him with a different name each time. He's with Chingachgook, the Delaware, the Great Serpent. Chingachgook means Great Serpent. 
So he'll refer, refer to sometimes a serpent, great serpent, or, or just Chingachgook. And they're kind of the additional manpower that that the some British sergeant hire to help them along. So that's why they they meet up. So that's that's all that really happens in the first chapter. We we meet these characters, and so we got four. There's a there's a fifth character. No, no, that's six characters. There's a seventh character we meet later on who we really don't really learn anything about him till the second um, chapter. Um, so I'll come to him in a bit. But we get a familiar theme here in the early part of the story, which includes the distinctions between this whites and Indians. For Cooper, the frontier is always a divided place. Um, now, there's been some interesting scholarship on this question of how divided this American frontier is. The classic book is, I think the historian's name was White, and he wrote the book called um, The Middle Ground. And his, his big idea is that the frontier isn't as strictly divided as we thought, that Indians were playing politics on here, and there's cultural accommodation and, and mixture and interactions in the frontier. So that's why you get this term, the middle ground. And then, of course, this has been revised more recently by uh, Alan Taylor, who wrote this book called The Divided Ground. And he, he kind of complicates this picture a little bit by, by going back to some of the, the deeper divisions in the frontier. Of course, the traditional idea, the classic idea of the American frontier is one divided between whites and, and the Indians. And that's what Cooper comes from. So, um, where is it? Anyways, that, that comes through here. But we also get the divisions. We get new divisions here because that's old. We've, we learned that all in the Deerslayer and Last of the Mohicans of these contrasts. Now, it's not that Cooper stops talking about them, but we got new things to talk about in this novel, which is fun. And that is the distinction between kind of the land and the sea here. And just the nature kind of the, the use of the word ocean is, is rather interesting in this book as well. So we get this conversation between Mabel, who's called Magnet by Ca uh, Cap. And, and, and Cap, they're, they're, Mabel and Cap are talking about this, the scenery and the setting they're in. And he says, Cap says, more magnet, rather, say what less. Where are your combing seas, your blue water, your rollers, your breakers, your whales, or your water spouts in your endless motion in this bit of forest child? And she, asks, she responds, and where are your treetops, your solemn silence, and your fragrant leaves, and your beautiful green uncle on the ocean? So both, though, are presented as vast, open, beautiful. And later on, we have a similar language playing with this idea that both of these regions of the world are oceans and vast and, and intimidating, but and require different skills to master. Quote, this is Cooper, uh, the idea. The narrator, I should say. The idea that human beings were in their vicinity with the ocean of wilderness had deepened the flush on their blooming cheek and brightened the eye of the fair creature at his side. But now she turned with a look of surprise at her relative and said hesitantly, for both had often admired the Tuscarora's knowledge. So the, this term, the ocean of, of wilderness. Um, in fact, I, re I reviewed a, a book about piracy and the seas that used this term, the ocean of, of wilderness or wilderness of ocean. Um, probably this has been used a lot in, in literature. But anyways, it comes up a lot in this chapter, these distinctions between 
the sea and the land. And later on, we're going to add the distinction with the freshwater versus the saltwater and the different skills required to master those. But just this idea we have this vast frontier that's very much like the ocean in some fundamental ways. In fact, uh, Arrowhead calls Cap saltwater. So I guess that's enough of that. But at the end of this chapter, we are introduced to our hero, Natty Bumpo, who throughout the novel is known simply as Pathfinder. And he's with his friend, the great serpent, Shingachgook. And they're identified basically by following this fire. Chapter two. Now with, with the scout and his Delaware companion is their friend, a man named Jasper Western. Now he's the, he's the freshwater sailor. He's the one who makes his living working Lake Ontario. The quote unquote inland sea. Now I think Lake Ontario is actually the smallest of the Great Lakes. Although maybe, you no, know, maybe Erie is a little bit smaller, but. It's one of the smaller ones, right? Superior and Michigan and Huron are the biggest. Um, but still, it's being referred to as an inland sea. Now, Jasper is called Odus, which I'll have to look up in a Give me a second. Yeah, I just went quick, looked it up, so I don't embarrass myself. I, I assumed him in fresh water. I know O is water, of course, but um, yeah, it does mean just fresh water. So he's often referred to as just Jasper fresh water. Now, it's important that he has this French surname or French nickname. It kind of is a plot point later on in the character. It's that he just was raised around French-speaking people and with, with French Canadians. Now, Cap often is stressing kind of the mariner's way of life is superior to that of Jasper and the freshwater sailors and the frontier in general. And so there's a lot of kind of scolding and mocking in this chapter. And... It's just fun to read and to look at. Now, Pathfinder doesn't have this pejorative attitude towards people who specialize in saltwater or ocean sailors. He's not really aware of that. He doesn't really spend much time with on the ocean. And for him, it's really not part of his life. But for him, you know, everyone has their, their gifts and skill. But Cap does have a little bit more of a chip on his shoulder about the superiority of, of the ocean sailor. Well, I guess I'll just give you a taste of it. There must be satisfaction in this life of yours, no doubt, Master Pathfinder, continued Cap when the hunger of the travelers was so far appeased that they began to pick and choose among the savory morsels. It has some of the chances and luck that we seem in love, and if ours is all water, yours is all land. Nay, we have water too in our journeyings and marchings, returned his white companion. We border man handle the paddle and spear almost as much as the rifle and the hunting knife. Aye, but do you handle the brace and the bowline, the wheel and the lead line, the reef point and the top rope? The paddle's a good thing, out of doubt, in a canoe, but what use is it on the ship? Nay, I respect all men in their callings, and I can believe all things you mention have their uses. One who has lived, like myself, in companion in company of many tribes understands the difference in usages. The pain of a Mingo is not the pain of a Delaware, and he who should expect to see a warrior in the dress of a scow, squaw might be disappointed. I'm not very old, but I have lived in the woods and have some acquaintance with human nature. I never believe much in the learning of them that dwell in towns, and I have never yet met with one who had an eye for a rifle or a trail. I mean, it's all pretty friendly. It's not like a hostile thing, but there is a bit of a, a feeling of superiority that Cap has. And it comes partially from age. He's the oldest member of this. I guess Chingachgook and... 
and Pathfinder are around the same age, and they're both like around 40, maybe a little bit younger. And, you know, in the Deer Slayer, they're around 20, probably. Uh, that was like sometime in the, in the 1740s. So but that's basically they're just talking about these distinctions between saltwater and freshwater and frontier and the sea. Uh, now, we learn right away that Jasper and Mabel are, have a bit of an attraction. They're set up basically as a love interest by our author. And this is a bit of a red herring for us at this point um, in the novel, or maybe foreshadowing. It depends how you want to look on it. But, you know, a major plot point is going to be that Pathfinder is in love with Mabel and wants to marry her. And actually, Mabel's father is setting up Pathfinder to be his son-in-law. Um, but Pathfinder is so cagey about his feelings, it's not displayed. But the first sense of attraction we get is between Jasper and Mabel. Now, maybe I missed something, but... Quote, like most of the young who passed their time excluded from society of the softer sex, young Western was earnest, sincere, and kind in his intentions, which, though they wanted a conventional refinement that perhaps Mabel never missed, had those winning qualities that proved more efficient as substitutes. Leaving these two inexperienced and unsophisticated young people to become acquainted through their feelings rather than their expressed thoughts, we will turn to the group in which the uncle, with a facility for taking care of himself and never deserted, had already become a principal actor. So that, that's for me is kind of the first sense that we have an attraction um, set up here. Um, but again, just more distinctions uh, presented in this chapter. Uh, we, we get a lot on the contrast between living in cities and living on the frontier. And I already read a little bit of this where Pathfinder doesn't really fully respect the people who, who live on the frontier. And we get a bit more detail on this in a few pages where Pathfinder says, The towns and settlements lead to sin, I will allow. But our lakes are bordered by forest, and one is every day called to worship God in such a temple. And stop here for a second. This is this idea of the of the forest as a temple is something he talks about in the Deer Slayer. Not as much a theme in Last of the Mohicans, but in this pair of novels written at around the same time, Cooper comes back to this idea of worshiping God in nature. Um, but also just thrown in here the little scorn at the at the cities, and you know. I don't know what kind of cities Pathfinder had much encounter with. Probably not much more than trading posts or forts and things like that. So what Pathfinder always comes back to in these talks is his old theory of gifts. That everyone has their own skills coming from their heritage and their background and providence. He, he always throws in providence too. He's got this very religious attitude. He's not a, a kind of religious by the book. Certainly not like uh, David Gamut was in in Last of the Mohicans. But his his views of God come from his time in the forest. But he does see see providence as at work in in the frontier in various ways. For Pathfinder, it's the forest education that was key to his own upbringing. And he talks a little bit about his own forest education. So Cooper does a lot in Chapter 2, but mostly it's just talky, um, which is actually some of the funnest parts of Cooper's novels. I find his action scenes very actually kind of tedious and tough to get through and hard to follow from time to time. Um, by modern standards, these are, these are not how you would write an action sequence today, I don't think. Now, okay, in chapter three, the party kind of sets off on their travels now that they've met, they've meet, met up, and now they're going to go on their way. 
And their goal, of course, is Fort Oswego, where Mabel's father is. And in this chapter, Pathfinder and his friend Jasper conspire to prove to Cap that a saltwater sailor are not necessarily superior to those on the freshwater by leading him into a challenge that his saltwater skills would he would fail at or he couldn't succeed at. So we get more talking on the on the distinctions between the inland sea and and the or the inland waters and the sea once more. We get a bit more of this. So, but basically, the challenge they give him is they basically lead him into a waterfall that he has to navigate, and it's 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 all kind of funny and good humor because it's not a serious waterfall that that they're presented. He even at one point says this is not Niagara, so it's not like a, like a risk to it, but. It is said, it's meant to sort of prove to Cap that different skills in different locations actually matter. The end of the chapter has a nice moment where they discuss Mabel and the contribution of women to frontier settings, which is something that Cooper has to think about because he, he puts women into all his stories, these frontier stories, um, especially in the Deerslayer, where you have women who have kind of lived on the frontier for many years. Quote, we know too well women's gift to think of carrying the sergeant's daughter over the falls. Although I've been acquainted with some of her sex in these regions that would think little of doing this thing. And then Cap returns, Fable is may faint-hearted like her mother. You did well, friend, to humor her weakness. You'll remember the child has never been at sea. No, no, it was easy to discover that by her own fearlessness. Anyone who had seen how little you cared about the matter. I went over it once with a raw hand. And he jumped out of the canoe just as it tipped, and you may judge what time he had. And so they're, they're talking a little bit about the challenge of the waterfall and how it's not that serious. But the question is, you know, could Mabel have handled this? And, you know, the idea that there's a women do different things on the frontier. They can't, they're not capable of doing everything that men can do. All right, so chapter, well, chapter four through six, we can kind of take as a group because it's a long action sequence. So basically, they, they, they're attacked by Iroquois uh, over these six chapters. And as I've said, these, are, these seem to be Iroquois, um, but they're all referred to as Mingos. So the exact tribal identity of these Iroquois is not really known. Actually, I don't think they are Huron, though. But the action of the novel begins. It's still a slow burn. This is just like a preface to the real action that comes later in the novel. And it's, it does a couple important things in this chapter. One important thing it does is it really establishes the, the importance of, or the respect Jasper has among, especially Pathfinder. So it's, it's an important point that Pathfinder fully trusts and respects and, and honors the contributions of Jasper. So Jasper, at several points, does very brave things. And then we get a lot, we, Chingachgook really gets to shine in these chapters as, as well. Um, there's conversations here about kind of the, the Iroquois in the countryside and how the soldiers in the fort may not really be attuned to the danger of the frontier warriors. And, you know, here Pathfinder's utility and attention to detail pay off when he proposes his plans to evade and hide from the Iroquois. And there's all kinds of circumventions, to use his language, of how they get away from that. And they again, the old trope of using the water as a way to kind of cover one's trail. But even at one point he says, we can't even smoke tobacco because the Iroquois will be able to smell the tobacco and then know, you know, who's there. You know, they might even be able to smell the difference between their own tobacco and the tobacco of, of whites. Um, but eventually the, it's spotted that the Iroquois are onto them and tracking them. 
Okay, well, basically what happens is Chingachgook ambushes a group of of Iroquois and he survives that ambush and he comes back. And then there's a discussion about how to get to Fort Oswego. And the decision is to go by water. But during the fighting, they lost a canoe. They also, however, lost Arrowhead and and Jew of Dew of June. Now these characters were kind of in the background for much of this early part of the story. They're, they don't say much after the first chapter. In fact, there's scenes where Cooper just says they're like they were in a group and they talked amongst themselves. So there's something suspicious about them already. But more to make it more suspicious is they bail um, during this during this fight. But there's discussion what to do. Well, one can you you know is got away from them, so they need to get it back. So Jasper and Chingachgook basically swim to the canoe to acquire it because they're going to need both to get to Fort Oswego. And during this, they're attacked. Jasper and Chingachgook are attacked by an Iroquois warrior, and there's a very brutal fight. And Jasper comes back with the boat, leaving Chingachgook behind. They then say, we need to go get him. But Pathfinder says, well, he'll be fine, right? And he's either dead or alive, and his skills are well enough that he has a good chance of surviving and there's nothing we can really do to help him. So it's just a matter of sort of waiting for Tsingachgook to come back. This is exactly what he says about this at the end. He says, The great serpent is in the hands of his own deity and we live or die according to the intentions of providence. We can do him no good and may risk too much by remaining here in idleness like women talking over their distresses. The darkness is very precious. And that's the part of the plan is to use the darkness to escape. So that, that's basically the first six chapters of the Pathfinder. Um, but there's a few nice bits in, in this prolonged action scene uh, that, that kind of are thematically important. And I'll just f- uh, focus on maybe three, maybe two or three. Um, one is there's a scene where he's Pathfinder is shooting at the Iroquois and the Iroquois is shooting back at him and he essentially mocks them in battle and you know Cooper has this issue where he often has Pathfinder talking or Deerslayer or whatever this, this character talking to himself and it's explained away is that he just kind of has been on the frontier for so long he has no one to talk to so he just talks to himself it's almost like he doesn't have a stream of consciousness in his head and Cooper doesn't know how to use the stream of consciousness so things that you would think would be internal reflections in a normal novel or in most especially in a mo- I mean a modern novel I guess are just presented as spoken dialogue here and this is a good example of that but he says I empty your life li- rifles like simpletons as you are empty your rifles with an unsteady aim and give me time to put yard upon yard of a river between us I'll not revile you like a Delaware or a Mohican for my gifts are a white man's gifts and not an Indian's and boasting in a battle is not part of a Christian warrior but I may say here, all alone by myself, that you are little better than so many men from the town shooting at robins in the orchards. That was well meant, throwing his head back as a rifle bullet cut a lock of hair from his temple. But the lead that misses by an inch is as useless as the lead that never quits the barrel. So basically he's talking about this kind of the strategy of, of get, encouraging the Indians to waste their uh, shots while they get away. And then kind of their lack of skill with the rifle compared to his own skill with the rifle is a, is a plot point throughout the Letter of the Shocking Tales that we've looked at so far. 
Another thing that comes up, and it's a bit of foreshadowing from later on, because when Chinchgachkuk does come back to the party in Chapter 7, he's going to bear with him um, some scalps. So we get uh, an explanation of how important scalps are to the Delaware, and as part of his trophies and part of his record of his battle. Um, but I think the most important declaration by Pathfinder during this battle is his statement of his his the morality of war and we get his explanation of his moral compass during the war and he's talking to Jasper when he does this quote I will not seek blood without a cause in my bullet is well leathered and carefully driven down for the time of need I love no mingo just as is, is just seeing how much I have consorted with the Delaware who are their mortal and natural enemies but I pull no trigger on one of the miscreants unless it be plain that his death will lead to some good end. The deer never leaped that fell by my hand wantingly. By living much alone with God in the wilderness, a man gets to feel the justice of such opinions. One life is sufficient for our present wants, but there may be yet an occasion to use killdeer on behalf of the serpent who has done an untiremost thing to let the rampant devil so plainly know that he is in their neighborhood. As I'm a wicked sinner, there is one of them prowling along the bark at this very moment like one of the boys of the garrison sulking behind a fallen tree to get a shot at a squirrel. And that, this is an important reminder that Deer Slayer is, is, despite killing many people in these stories, is a fundamentally moral character and, um, and the moral heart of the, of the novel. He even is able to scorn Shingachu's recklessness because Pathfinder wants to get through this challenge without necessarily killing more people than he has to, but Chingachkuk has put him in a position where he may have to kill others. So on the one hand, he's able, capable of mocking his enemies, of taking advantage of their weaknesses, of, you know, shouting scorns at them, but also deep down, he's, he's a very moral person in the way he approaches, approaches war. So um, that's, that's kind of how this opening segment ends in the second hundred pages of of the Pathfinder. We're going to basically be in Fort Oswego. So rather than just going there, Cooper wanted to give us this nice action scene uh, before a, a really slow time. And but the next chunk is going to be mostly spent in Lake uh, or in Fort Oswego on Lake Ontario, and it's going to be we're going to meet a few more characters, but it's but two and two important characters uh, especially. The sergeant major, uh, Mabel's father, and then a quartermaster, who's kind of presented as the, the white villain of, of the novel. So that does it. Uh, not a lot has happened. It's basically just a couple, maybe just even just one day or two days of plot where this group meets up and then they're betrayed, obviously by Arrowhead and Jew of Dune, although that betrayal is not fully um, actual realized until later on because Chingachuk brings news back. But, you know, the reader is pretty, it's pretty clear to the reader that Arrowhead is doing something suspicious. And then they, they have this, getting this escape from this ambush. Um, so that does it. So I don't know if there's much, to, much more to talk about. I, I guess mostly is, is Cooper's focus on distinctions and his focus on gifts. And I guess these are kind of one and the same theme. That's what comes clear in this. Um, but what do you think of this novel? Uh, if you've read it? I know it's one of the least read of these leather stocking tales. I guess Deerslayer, Last of the Mohicans, and the and and what pioneers maybe. I, I don't know. I'd have to. I don't know if there's stats kept on this kind of thing, but 
I'm I'm not sure many people come across this novel, at least not as often as these other ones. I don't think it's ever been filmed. But it, it has potential in a lot of ways, and I like it, especially for its discussions on the ocean, on the sea, and because we do have a kind of a love triangle um, presented here, which is a lot of fun, especially a love triangle between friends, between people who, who really respect and honor each other. So uh, I guess that does it. Yeah, again, leave your comments as always uh, or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear your feelings about this this novel. Um, if not, you can keep listening and I, hopefully you're reading along. If, but, but I'll be back shortly with the second part of, of the Pathfinder. There'll be five parts altogether. So um, hope you look forward to it. I look forward to coming back and I'll see you shortly after I collect my thoughts on yet another part of, of Cooper's Leatherstocking Tales. Let Christian men take heart today, the devil's rule is done. Let no man heed the devil more, for Jesus Christ has come. But hear ye all what angels sing, how Mary made for Jesus King. Jesus, I